You are listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. For more information about our church, please visit www.hopechurchipswich.net. Good morning, church. Welcome. Um, today we will be continuing our look into the book, um, Letters of Paul to the Corinthian Church. Uh, and we've reached the penultimate chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians. But here Paul comes to the church in 1 Corinthians after covering so many issues with the church. And over the past few weeks, if you've been with us, we've been studying about different things such as um, the divisions within the church, relationships, marriage, um, sexual relationships, idolatry, um, the nature of love, the gifts um, that the church have. So there's been a breadth of topics that Paul has been covering with the Corinthian church. And so he gets to chapter 15 of his letter, and then he, he focuses the mind of the church on the topic of resurrection. So today we will be looking at the resurrection. So join me as I read from 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 11. Now I will remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you. Unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some are fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then to the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you because your word and the truths of your word are eternal. And we just pray, God, that you will open our eyes to see the truth in your word, that you humble our hearts, that we will not think ourselves too big for you. Help us, Lord, today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so Paul comes to this chapter and says to them, I'm reminding you of what is of first importance. I'm reminding you of the gospel that I received and then I passed on to you. And so Paul, it's interesting that after he goes on all the topics about, you know, relations, relationships, marriage, love, and all these things, he comes back to the gospel. And it's a picture of a, of a sailor that's been through the storms of the seas, the high seas, and then pulls his vessel into the harbor and sets down the anchor. And this is the picture that I have here of what Paul is doing by reminding them of what is first importance. And we understand that an anchor is not a nice-to-have part of the ship. It's not, you know, if you like an anchor, you can have it. If you don't like it, you can have it. It's a necessary part of a vessel because when there are storms and when there is wind, as there will be on the high seas, you need a anchor. You need an anchor to hold you down. You need an anchor to keep you in place. And this is what the gospel is for Christians. And you will notice even in your life, if you've come to know Christ, like I've noticed in my own life, 
from time to time when things happen in my life and I'm affected by the circumstances of my life. And sometimes I'm easily swayed. Sometimes I'm easily disappointed. Sometimes I easily give up. And if I remind myself, if I, if I actually am honest with myself, I'll realize that that is because I've forgotten about my anchor. And that is the gospel. As Christians, our anchor is the gospel. Now, we talk a lot about the gospel. And it's something that we talk about in this church and bring to bear every time, in every preach we have, in every circumstance. Romans 10, 9 reads, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Uh, this is a, what we call a bite-sized summation of the gospel. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that is the Son of God, and you believe in your heart that he was raised from the dead, then you will be saved. The gospel literally means good news. That's what it means. And essentially, it is the story of man in enmity with God, in rebellion against God. But God, who is perfect and just, will judge mankind. Because he's perfect and just. And so in our rebellion, he will judge. We get upset in our society today when we find out that people in positions of power have gotten away with terrible things and abused the power. And that's sinful men. How much more God, who is perfect, far perfect than we will ever be. Will, should we get off scot-free from our rebellion, from our sin? Of course not. But God isn't content with leaving us there Waiting is justice and waiting to be judged. God, rich in mercy, sent Jesus Christ to take our place, to take the justice that was meant for us, to take it upon himself. The sad part of it is that when we present the gospel to people, we tend to end it here. We bring them to the cross, rightly so. We let people see it is your sin that Christ is painful on that cross. And no, it's not the physical nails of the Romans. And it's not the crown of thorns. And it's not the weeps and, and the lashes and, and, and the beating that Christ received. That's not the real suffering. Because when you hear what Christ was saying on the cross, it's, it was beyond that. He was saying, my Lord, my Lord, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was something that went beyond the physical that was happening to Christ. It says in scriptures that the chastisement, that means the beating, the suffering, the, the justice that was meant for us, was put on him. God treated Christ the way he would have treated sinful men who did not place their trust in Christ. So he treated Christ as a sinner and he judged him. And Christ suffered something on that cross that I can't fully comprehend in my limited understanding. But we tend to end the message of the gospel here. You see, the gospel is not just that Christ died on the cross. The gospel is the fact. The good part of the good news is that he was risen again. He came to life again. You see, there are many men across the ages who have done good things and admirable things. And they're still dead. Christ would have been just like them if he remained dead. There is massive implications to what the gospel is about. But first, I want us to focus our mind on three first things, which is the death and the resurrection of Christ was something the scripture foretold. This isn't something that um, 
first century Jews came up with. This was something that was foretold in scriptures. And we can see in the first part of scriptures in, the, in Genesis 3, I believe 15, where God promised to the woman that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. The serpent being Satan who brought temptation and sin to the world. And it says, the serpent will strike the heel of the woman, but the, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. The power of Satan is bringing sin and death into the world. That is the power of Satan. But God said the seed of the woman will absolutely smash and destroy the head of the serpent. That is, it will conquer death itself. That was the first prophecy of the coming of the Messiah. And in Psalm 16.10, it says, You will not let your Holy One see decay, but you will make known to him the path of everlasting life. And this is another prophecy that, you know, pe people were saying, well, is this talking about David? We know David died and David is decayed. So it couldn't be David. It was talking about the Messiah to come. And this is why in Luke 24, 27, there were two disciples. We were walking back. We were just walking and talking about, you know, we've heard that Christ has risen and they didn't believe it. And then Christ appeared to them on the way. And then they were kind of puzzled as to who is this guy. And it says, he explained to them all that will happen to the Messiah from Moses to the prophets. That is, from Genesis to Malachi. So, the Old Testament, what we call the, that's the first half of the, of the Bible, talks about the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is why Paul labors to say that Christ was risen according to scriptures. Secondly, this is a historical event witnessed by multiple credible eyewitnesses including Paul, the writer of this letter. And thirdly, the heart of gospel preaching and Christian belief is the resurrection. You take anyone in this room now, you remove their heart from them, and they'll be dead. It is the same way with the resurrection. You take the resurrection out of the gospel, you have no gospel. You have no good news. You have a nice sounding news. You have a maybe, it sounds kind of nice, but there is no good in that news because the resurrection is not included in it. Now, I find that over the years, Christians tend to have a very, um, can be very blasé sometimes about the resurrection. And I think it's because we've been hammered or we, we come across it. We talk about the resurrection or resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday and, and all these things. And so we get used to it. And it, it becomes to us like we're going to Asda. You know, resurrection, yeah, of course, resurrection. And then you have people who are skeptics and say, that couldn't have happened. And they treat the resurrection with complete disdain and say people that think that kind of stuff are utter morons. And then you have a third category of people who believe but are not quite sure. Well, how do I explain? What's, what's the evidence? Like, how can I really defend this resurrection? Because it's a big claim. The first thing you have to admit is the resurrection is a big claim. Now, the challenges to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the natural challenges, are legitimate. Don't look at someone and go, oh, you're just a terrible unbeliever. It is legitimate. We don't see dead people rise up every day. You know, our world would be completely different if dead people rose up every day. That's why it's a legitimate challenge. Explain this. How can you possibly think that this is correct? And this is why skeptics will say, well, maybe the reason why these guys 
proclaimed the resurrection was because, you know, they were first century Jewish men, you know, peasants, not educated and sophisticated like us iPhone users and us Apple product users. You know, we're, we're more sophisticated. We know better than that. And some would say, maybe, just maybe, they had some really strong illegal substances. And that's what caused them to see these funny things. And some will argue, maybe the apostles were a bunch of charlatans looking for a following. They wanted a following. They wanted a crowd. They wanted to make a name for themselves. But all this argument, which I've picked them because they're the strongest one, fall apart. They fall apart because, first of all, the first skeptics of the resurrection were the apostles. You think you're a skeptic? The apostles beat you to it. In Luke 24, 10, 11, the women who went to the tomb to go and um, anoint the body of Jesus Christ to just perform some ceremonial um, um, rites in it, just to clean it and all that kind of stuff, protect it from smelling. I think that, that was the intention of the women. They went there and the tomb was empty and they saw an angel that says, he's not here anymore. Go and tell the apostles. And so what did they do? They went over to the apostles and then they told the apostles. And the apostles were like, there's a bunch of idle tales. This is absolutely nonsense. How can dead people rise again? They didn't believe it. They were skeptics. Secondly, there is no medical known phenomenon as a mass hallucination. I did some research on this. To say, is there, you know, there's a guy known as Bart Ehrman, and his strongest critic of the gospel is that, oh, where there is this thing known as mass hallucination that could have happened to them, and there's also this, this image, and they were having this mass hallucination. So I, I did some research into it, and there is no such thing as mass hallucination. People have individual hallucination, but if you have a room of people seeing the same thing, hearing the same thing at the same time, that's because they are dealing with reality, not hallucinations. There is no such thing as a mass hallucination. In fact, if you want to believe that this was some type of mass hallucination, then what you're doing is using a miracle to disprove a miracle, which is ridiculous. Thirdly, the apostles were first century Jews. And we don't fully appreciate this because what they were proclaiming, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, a man who was scorned and nailed and treated like a criminal on the cross, is risen again and is the son of God, is the most offensive thing they could possibly say to that culture. So they stood to gain nothing from that. That was, that was a, a guaranteed. You, you talk to politicians today and politicians have this team of people that tell them this is what you say, this is what you say to get this demographic, this is what you say to get this demographic, right? Don't say this because if you say this, you'll lose this demographic. What these guys were doing was saying the thing that will lose the demographic they were supposed to preach to. But they were dealing with what they saw. They knew it was offensive. But that's what they saw. Fourthly, the apostles lost their lives for the resurrection claim. All of them. They died, beheaded, impaled by despair, crucified upside down, thrown in boiling oil, thrown on an island to starve to death. It was... This is historically what happened to the apostles. They were all killed for a claim of what they saw. Now, if there was an upside to this, let's say they were going to get some, make some money. Let's say, you know, oh, well, if I make this life a lie about the resurrection, at least my wife will have one million quid in an account. You know, maybe I could possibly die. But they lost everything. Their families lost everything for this claim. They stood to gain nothing for this. And they lost their lives for this claim. And finally... One of the biggest evidence of the resurrection was a first century jihadi known as Apostle Paul. 
he used to travel up and down the Middle East looking for Christians to persecute, to kill, to destroy. That was his, that's what he specialized in. He said, these guys are heretics. These guys are going to tarnish Judaism. We need to take them down. And so he just went up and down looking to kill them. And at the end of his life, he starts writing a letter about the resurrection of Christ. And we know how Paul ended his life under the sword of Emperor Nero. So what did this man stand to get? He was trained by Gamaliel, who was one of the highest and the best teachers in Judaism. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He had status, he had power, he had money, he had influence, he had what he wanted. He was going to lose everything. For a lie? For a lie? Now this guy saw something. Professor Thomas Arnold, who lived in the uh, 19th century and was the history chair of Oxford, uh, Oxford University, said, I have been used for many years to study the histories of other times and to examine and weigh the evidence of those who have written about them. I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which has proved better and fuller evidence of every sort to the understanding of a fairer inquirer than the great sign which God had given us that Christ died and rose again from the dead. Now, if you took the case, now speaking to um, one of our elders in the church, is a lawyer, a seasoned lawyer, knows his stuff, and knows people that know this stuff. If you take the case of Christ, because this, is, this isn't a... This isn't a case of what, you know, um, it's a biological DNA test we're, we're performing here. This is a claim of he said, she said, right? So if you took this to court, what you want is credible eyewitnesses. Preferably you like multiple credible eyewitnesses. Preferably you like consistency on the testimonies of the eyewitnesses. And preferably you like to see that the motive of the eyewitnesses is not tainted. Now on all this account... On all this account, the claim of the resurrection stands solid, impenetrable. From a court of law case, this is a winner. Now, in the Corinthian church, you had many people who believed that, well, the resurrection maybe not didn't really happen. That was a very, very um, common thing in the uh, Greek philosophy at that time that, you know, obviously, in everyone's philosophy, that dead people didn't rise again. But people were skeptics. Some people said, well, the dead don't rise again. Maybe Christ could have risen, but the dead don't rise again. And, and Paul says, look, look, you have to understand the implication of what you're saying. Now, I'm not going to read through um, verse uh, 12 to 19. But in it, Paul lays out firstly what the implication is if Christ did not raise from the dead. Now, before I proceed forward, if you're here and you're a skeptic and you say, well, this is a bunch of, you know, um, my teacher used to say, milk cow manure. Um, if you think that it's absolute nonsense, I'm going to give you a silver bullet today to take down Christianity. Firstly, the apostle said, Apostle Paul said, if this didn't happen, firstly, we're liars. Secondly, the message of the Christian faith is useless. And you're still in your sins. And when you die, there is no hope for you. There is no hope for the dead. If Christ was not raised from the dead. If the dead are not raised again. And that means if you're still in your sins and you die, that means you're still under God's judgment. Third implication, Christians are the most pathetic people. This is what Paul says. He says, if we believe this, he says, we, of all people, we are to be the most pitied. I feel sorry for us. 
we should be that kid on Oxfam. And, you know, looking at the, the, the camera, you know, we should be that people. Like, these Christians are pathetic. They're believing in a risen Christ that is dead. This is the implication if Christ is not awake. So I'm asking for a favor today. If you're there and you have good evidence that the resurrection is not true, please let me know. And I say this genuinely. There's no point in us wasting our time here. There's no point in us wasting our time. That's all Paul says. If Christ is not rise from the dead, he says it in this chapter. He said, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. There's no point. Let's not waste our time here. But if Christ was raised from the dead, if the resurrection is true, then it means everything. Everything. Now, picture in your mind the best oak door you can you can possibly get. Powerful, mighty stuff. You can get 10 strong guys going through that stuff and they will not be able to move it. The weakest part of that door is the hinge of the door. That's the weakest part of the door, the hinge. Because if you remove the hinge of the door, you can just kick the door, no matter how strong, just push it forward and it will fall flat. The resurrection is the same thing. When we look at the scripture, we look at the promises of God, the promises to Abraham that God will bless the whole world through the seed of Abraham, the promises to David that God will bless David and create a, a, an eternal kingship through him, the promises of forgiveness of sin, the promises of, of, of guilt, of removing guilt, the promises of spending an eternity with God, all these things rest on the resurrection. Every single thing. The resurrection is the hinge. Is the hinge that holds up that mighty oak door. You remove the resurrection and you've got no door. If Christ is raised from the dead, then it's a serious implication. Number one, it means Adam's curse has been broken. If anyone remembers, the curse the man endured at the start was that if you eat of this fruit, you will die. And we've all suffered. We are all, in one way or the other, dying. You will die. But if Christ is raised from the dead, that means someone has broken that curse. That means that lineage of death after death after death has been broken. Number two, the work of Christ on the cross is perfect and has been accepted. Christ said to his disciples, he says, you put this body to death, it's going to come to life after three days. He always said it to them, said it to them, said it to them. Right? Now imagine he died. So I'm going to the cross. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to do this. I'm the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. I'm going to do this. And then he dies and he remains dead. <laughs> that means his sacrifice was not accepted. That means it was futile. That means he, he made a really good effort. You know, people say, oh, good effort. I, I, I hate that when I'm playing this. But someone says, good effort. Because I, I want to win. Right? When someone says, good effort. You know you've done bad. Oh, good effort, mate. Right? But this isn't good effort. This was a complete work. This was an accepted sacrifice. Thirdly, those who died believing in Christ will know resurrection again. Those who died believing in Christ will know the resurrection again. This is what happened in the thief, to the thief of the cross. On the cross, the thief basically turned to Christ. After a lifetime of career, you know, a professional thief. You know, we're talking about a professional. He wears his suit and tie and goes to work. Oh, honey, where are you going to? I'm going to work. He was a professional thief. And on the cross, he turns around to Christ, broken, and he said, remember me, Lord. And Christ says, tonight you will be with me, my kingdom. Those who trust in Christ and keep on placing their trust in Christ. You die trusting in Christ, 
you will be raised again. This is the implication of the resurrection. Fourthly, Christ is who he claimed he was. He kept saying, I and the Father are one. I came from the Father. I proceed out of the Father. The the Father is my Father. He's my Father. I know the Father. Imagine, he died. And he remains dead. That means God is like, good for you. Kept lying about me being your Father and all that. But he was raised again. That means he was who he claimed he was. The Son of God. And as the Son of God, it means all authority in heaven on earth, under the earth, has been given to him. And he will bring everything to subjection at the end of ages. And he will present it to the Father, saying, Father, this is all mine, but it's all yours. And he will make an end to death. This is the implication of the resurrection. Finally, it means our labor is not in vain. I think this is very important because many people toil as Christians. They toil... They do the right thing. They, they love God, they serve God, they obey God, they serve God faithfully at work, they serve God faithfully in the church, they serve God faithfully in the community. They, they, they're obedient to God. What is it for? Paul says, be steadfast in distance. At the end of, of, of 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, it says, therefore, brethren, be steadfast. Do not be moved. Now I'll read it here. It says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. One day we're going to stand before God and we're going to give an accounting to God. And God is going to be like, well done, my good and faithful servant. It's not in vain. There is an end to this. And he will reward those who faithfully serve him. This is the implication of the resurrection. So if you're here today and go, well, that sounds nice. That's your truth, but not my truth. Firstly, there is no such thing as your truth, but my truth. There is no duality in truth. Truth is truth. That's a lie out there in the world. Then this implicates you also. It implicates you. It will be better for you to be an alien in a different universe. You're not human, so it doesn't cover you. But you are a human, born of a woman, mortal. The resurrection of Christ means everything. It affects you because he will also judge you based on where your trust is in. It's all about trust, ladies and gentlemen. Are you placing your trust in yourself? Are you placing your trust in the hopeless future? Or are you placing your trust in the risen Christ? We don't worship Christ because it's really, it says really nice things. Buddha says some nice things. We don't worship Christ because... You know, he had a following. Muhammad had a following. We don't worship Christ because, you know, he was a nice guy. You know, people slapped him and he was like, thank you. That's not why we serve Christ. He is risen. He is risen in power. And this is the hope that we have. This is why when we have loved ones that pass away, Paul writes to us in another one of his letters that we do not mourn like those Without, a, without any hope. We do not mourn like people that don't have no future. Because we know they're going to raise again. You're going to see your grandma who, who, who loved Christ. You're going to see her. And you're like, man, you look good, grandma. You're going to be like, you don't need your walking stick anymore? And she will beat you in a race. Because that's what we're awaiting. That's what we're expecting in a new heaven and in a new earth. A resurrected body. 
In scientific terms, power is defined as the rate of doing work or the rate at which heat is transferred. Basically, it's how much energy can you transfer from one point to another within a period of time. So the quicker you can transfer energy, the greater the, the rate of power. We say about boxers, that guy's got a powerful punch on him. You know, Tyson has got a, an amazing punch. He's got a powerful punch. What that means is, you know, between zero and one second, he can generate a lot of force onto a very short, small, concentrated space and eradicate his opponent. That's what we talk about when we talk about great power. Muhammad Ali is known for his line, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. And he likes to boast about his thing and how you know, he's laid to waste people by his quick, rapid punches. We've got a champion that is superior to Muhammad Ali. We've got a champion in Jesus Christ. Now, our confidence is in this Christ, this risen Christ. And we're going to look at three angles to this power that we're talking about. Well, firstly, when Christ came to life again, he came to life in bodily form. Now, this was no um, Casper the ghost floating in space. It's a, a real body that you could feel and touch. And it says this in, in Luke 24, which I find very fascinating. So I'm just going to read quickly from Luke 24, 36 to 42. It says, And as they were talking about these things, Jesus stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. Hey. But they were startled and frightened, and they thought they saw a spirit. Right? They thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do you doubt? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that is I myself. Look at the holes. Right? Look at the holes. It's me. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones. So you have the, the apostles tugging at his skins and filling him. Like, it's physical. And when he said this and he showed them his hands and his feet, and while they still disbelieved, look, you think you're a skeptic? You've never seen Christ. This guy saw the risen Christ and they disbelieved. And so he said, oh, you know what? You know what? I'm going to help you out. And while they still disbelieved for joy, and were marveling, said, do you have anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and ate, them, ate it before them. Now, I love this. I love the fact because it was grilled fish. Not boiled fish. Grilled fish. It says broiled, right? Unlike boiled fish, all soft and mushy, right? So he wanted the hard stuff. He said, give me, give me a piece. You can hear the crunch in his mouth. And they, they gave it to him. And you can just imagine the picture as they passed it on to him. And they were looking, if it's a ghost, it's going to fall on the floor. You know it's going to fall on the floor. And he gets it, and he went, oh, um, like, oh my goodness. He consumes matter. He's actually real. This is a bodily resurrection we're dealing with. But it's more than this. In Acts 1, in verse 9, Jesus was talking to the disciples and said to them, go into Judea, go into Samaria, go into the uttermost part of the earth, proclaiming this gospel. Go out into the rest of the world. And so they were standing there watching him. And as they were standing there watching him, begin to levitate. And levitate. And they were all looking at him. And levitate. And they just kept staring at the sky until the, the, some angels came and said, as you saw Jesus go up into the sky, that's how we'll come back. This is a body that has power over gravity. It's not limited by our physical limitations. 
They were in a, in a room that they locked. And he came and appeared there. He is not restricted by matter. This is the type of body that we will have. This is the power we're talking about. He will be able, he'll be able to move between spaces within a short period of time. I was speaking to a friend of mine in this church. And we're talking about the kind of body we'll have and what we'll be able to do with it. And we thought, you know what? Maybe we'll say, I want to go to that star over there. And zoop, we're there. Okay, I want to come back to earth. And instantly we're back there. This is the type of power. I mean, scientists are still trying to bend space and warm holes and do all this kind of stuff. I mean, Christ is like, this is what I do. You know, this is, this is casual for me. The power of a death. This is a body that would not decay. We've talked about your grandmother. She's not going to grow old again. In fact, you wouldn't even call her grandmother. You probably call her little sister because she'll be so young. This is the power over death, power over decay that we will have in this body. And lastly, power over sin. Now, we have to realize that God delivers us and he saves us. God saves us into his kingdom. He saves us into eternal life. And as Tim said, Tim Virgo said before, that our eternal life begins the moment we Puts our trust in Jesus Christ. But we have to understand, we have to understand that it's not just so that we will have eternal life then, in the time coming, but now we will have power over sin. And what that means is that if you are in your life a slave to addiction, a slave to sin that holds you bound, that sets you captive, and you can't, there's some things in your life you know you, you want to break off from, but you can't. There is power here. Paul grew up and, 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 and was a fervent Jew and hated Christians to the point of killing them. But something changed him. It was the power of God. It was the power of God. Peter was an obsessive liar. He lied three times in one evening. He couldn't help himself. He was a coward. But power came. And when power came, history records it that he went... To be crucified like his Lord. But he said, I don't want to be crucified like my Lord. I want to be crucified upside down because of the confidence in him. There was a power of a sin. There was a power of a fear, of a death. This is what Christ brings. So if you're here today and say, you know what? I, I, I don't see that power in my life. I would like to see that power in my life. Christ says, listen to these words. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to those who are blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. This is what Christ does to set us free. He's not asking you for money. He's not asking you for anything. But he asks is that you come. Is that you recognize that you need him. He never goes to people who say, I got it all together. He went away from people who have it all together. He only goes to those who are broken, who recognize their state, that I need help. If you're here and you say, I need help, then Jesus is here. And today we're going to be celebrating baptism. And baptism demonstrates the death in Christ and the resurrection. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you because your truth sets us free. We thank you because you break every chain and you open the eyes of the blind. And I pray, Lord, today that you will humble our hearts, open the eyes of the blind and help us, Lord,
to trust in the resurrected Christ. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. Please feel free to make a copy of this content, but please do not edit the content in any way.